I want you to imagine something here this morning, okay? And this is going to be important for what we're about to come into. I want you to imagine that the laws of our country change. And they change to a trajectory where it becomes illegal to own or recite scripture, okay? This actually is not an unknown issue that Christians have faced throughout their history and the Jews before them. Times in history that if you had the scriptures or the wrong version of the scriptures, if you will, you could be imprisoned. You can have property confiscated. You could even be killed, as Jewish history itself would indicate. Now, I want you to imagine that you're living in that world. I want you to imagine that you're living in that world and something even this size begins to get too conspicuous. But you operate with an understanding that, that what God has to say here is so vital that I have to preserve it somehow and I don't trust my memory enough. What page am I going to take? What single page or single chapter am I going to take that I can fold up, hide, tuck away somewhere, keep completely off the radar so it wouldn't be found? The page that I would recommend to you if that situation were ever to occur is what we're looking at today. It is, in my opinion, the most vital, important grounding, foundational chapter of the entire Bible, and it is ultimate gospel beginning to end, and it is Romans chapter 3. Now, I want you to follow along with me today because I want to do two things. I want to not just teach you something about Romans chapter 3, but in using Romans chapter 3, I want to help you a little bit even understanding how the Bible fits together and how to go about reading the Bible to begin with. Because 10 bucks says if we were to put money down right now, many of you in this room at some point, dare I say all of you in this room, including myself at some point, have opened this and gone, huh? have opened this and had no idea what it was saying, no idea what it was about, going, I know this is really good. I don't know why, but I know we've been there, right? One of the single most important things that I've learned in coming to understand the Bible is divorcing yourself from a chapter and verse style of reading or separating yourself from a subheader style of reading. See, I think when we come across chapters in the Bible, we tend to read them as isolated articles. We'll look at these chapters and verses as though, okay, this is the contained unit. Here's an independent saying that's supposed to speak to me in one or two or, or three verses or something like that. Or, or we take the subheaders and we treat it like a magazine or a paper, right? We treat it like web articles where this is about this, this is about that, with no sense of how they connect together. And if you really want to understand how the Bible flows and what it is trying to say, you've got to get away from that cherry-picking, that isolated kind of reading. And what you have to follow instead of chapters and verses is narrative flow or logical flow or the flow of the argument that's continuing to compound to the place that you read. It doesn't sound that profound, but in my experience, most people don't read the Bible that way. 
which means for our purposes, if you were to open up to Romans chapter 3, what you would realize is that you were coming into the middle of an argument that has already been going on, and if you don't really know the groundwork that has been laid, it isn't really going to pack the punch that it's intended to have. Now, Romans 3 says this, if you're following along with me. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? The very argument that's asking this question begins all the way back in 118. So 118 to this point is a unit of thought that you're supposed to read to kind of get the flow of what's going on here. Does this make sense? All right, now, we got to do a little terminology work this morning. In the Bible, there is a classification of two different types of people, Jew and Gentile. All right, what's Jew? Well, from an Old Testament perspective, a Jew, you might go, well, it's, it, it's kind of like a biological descendant of Abraham. It, it's one of the people that was born to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, which is kind of true, except for the problem that at times there would be those called Gentiles who would become Jews too. They're not changing their DNA. They're not changing their, their biological makeup. So how do they get to be Jews? In fact, when God calls the people he calls Jews or Israel out of Egypt, it says that at that exodus, we always think it's just the Israelites, right? Do you know what it says that many Egyptians went with them? That that day of the exodus when God came to free his people, many Egyptians said, I want that and that God too. And as they passed through the Red Sea, God made them Jews. And so what was built into the Old Testament law were these identity markers, these things that would mark you to show you, yes, I am a Jew. I have chosen to be a Jew. I have become a a deliberate part of this group called Jew, all right? And, And the key, the chief identity marker was circumcision. And so Paul asks, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Or, to put it another way, to being of that circumcision group of people. Now, why is he asking this to begin with? First, there is so much going on here that all I'm going to try to attempt to do is give this to you in the broadest strokes. But if you begin back at 118, Paul begins by saying this. All right, Jews, you know those Gentiles out there? You know them out there? Basically, anyone who's not one of you, they're miserable wretches. They're terrible people, aren't they? Man, you know what? Their judgment's coming. God, God is seeing what they're doing. God is seeing how they're messing up this earth. God is seeing how they're messing up other people. And the hammer is going to come to which every good Jew who has ever felt that hammer at the presence of the Gentiles is doing what? Yeah. Right? To frame it in modern terms, it would be like this. Do you know the horrible things that horrible people are doing in this world? Guys, I got good news for you. Their judgment's coming. God's not turning a blind eye. He's not turning a blind eye to the people that are being brutalized. He's not not turning a blind eye to the people that are manipulating, exploiting, terrorizing, destroying, hurting people around without a seeming disregard for anything. You know what I'm saying here? Just do this right now. Think of some of the worst people that you can think of in society. 
All right, give me a few. Hitler, all right. No one said my spouse yet. Okay, that's good. It, I don't mean that here. Come on, we know this, guys. I'm talking you. I love you. What? <laughs> Stalin, all right. Hitler, Stalin, Mao. Saddam, I heard something back there. We'll just go with you. I'll trust you. Um, you get the idea, right? You know what? According to 118, God sees it. And their judgment is coming. Those people who have forsaken God, who care nothing for God's ways, nothing for God's laws, nothing for goodness. God sees and God is going to judge, which is supposed to take the people of God and make them start cheering until we hit chapter two. And God asks this, are you any better? Maybe you haven't done the exact same things, but are you any better? You who call yourself Jews is how Paul would put it. You who call yourself Jews and pride yourselves on knowing what God says is good and true, are you actually doing it? Are you actually living by it? Or are you a hypocrite? Are you even worse than the people who don't have it and are doing atrocities because you know better than them? And are you guilty of falling into the same patterns of greed, envy, hate? Desires for vindictiveness or revenge, selfishness and self-centered. Are, are, are you really kind of coming from the same platform as they? In fact, Paul in chapter 2 will go so far to say, you know what, at the judgment day, some of those people that you call the worst will be closer to my heart than you are because at least they had somewhat of a modicon of an excuse of not knowing but you who know better, you who have been told and have been given this, do you even take the time to read what I want, let alone live it? And by the end of chapter two, Paul seems to bring everyone to this place of going, when that judgment day comes, there is a lot of soul searching to do for each and every one of us. Are you with me? And this is what predicates chapter three. Because Paul's anticipating what someone might say, oh, so what's the, why be a Jew then? Why be a people of God? If, if this is just raising the stakes, what advantage is there to being a Jew? What advantage is there to being circumcised, to being one of those, those people who have chosen and set themselves aside. And it seems like the answer should be none, right? But Paul says the opposite. He goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't, don't misunderstand. What is the advantage? Verse 2, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now just pause for a moment and think about how awesome a privilege that is. Do you know that right now there are people throughout the world that are desperately wondering if there is a God and if he has something to say? 
We take it so for granted, don't we? But there are people, even in our own communities, you don't have to go to sub-Saharan Africa. You don't have to go to Indonesia. There are people in our own communities wondering, is there really a God up there? Is there really a God up there? And can I know him? And does he actually have anything to say? And Paul is saying, you Jews, you Jews, you have been entrusted with the very words of God. Is there a more holy awesome, or privileged task. But it seems like the problem with the Jews was this. They took this idea of God choosing them for special privilege or special purpose, and they twisted it to be something completely other than what God meant it to be. It kind of reminds me of like this. Think about a mailman. Now, step back for a minute and just think about what a a mail carrier does. At some fundamental level, a mail carrier is entrusted with an awesome responsibility. Do you know how much you can screw up someone's life by tampering with their mail? Oh, yeah, I didn't get the form. Guess what? You lost your disability benefits. Oh, yeah, I was never served the paper. Yeah, guess what? She divorced you and took everything We've been in these places, right? You ever miss an audit note from the IRS and three years later you get notice that you have back taxes to pay? How much can you screw with someone by tampering? Mail carriers have an awesome responsibility. In a lot of ways, they're Jews. They're kind of a a class to themselves. They, They wear strange clothes and do strange things like walk here and there, everywhere. They, they seem to be this light of the world, knowing everyone that they meet. And they, they, they define themselves by mantras of neither rain or slow or sleet or right. I mean, they, they have creeds and they have beliefs. And Now, imagine if a mail carrier was to say, oh my gosh, I've been chosen. I've been selected. I have been entrusted with this awesome task on the part of the leader, on the part of the king. You got got my meaning here, right? That's so awesome. So you know what? That must mean they really, you know what? That must mean it's all for me. So I'm just going to kind of sit at home and I'm going to read people's mail. I'm going to sit at home. I'm going to read people's mail. and, And because I'm chosen, because I'm special, I'm going to decide what's really important here. I'm going to decide what they need to know. I'm going to make the decisions that these these communique are asking for, and I'm going to act on their behalf because I'm a mail carrier. (laughs) You see the problem here? And this is what happened to the Jews. They became like mail carriers who thought that their privilege, that their choosing, that their selection meant it was all about them instead of realizing that they were entrusted with an amazing task to bring a message that was desperately hungered for by the people. Are you with me? And he goes on, and he says, okay, so, so what, if, what if some of them weren't any good? What if some of them weren't faithful in this? Does that mean that God has kind of like dropped the ball here? No, 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 no. Just because the mail carriers aren't doing their job doesn't mean that the one sending the mail has been faithless. Let God be true. 
and every man a liar, as it is written, so that, Lord, you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Okay, but what about this? What if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly? You get the idea here? If God is gracious, the amount of grace that's going to be shown is going to be directly proportional to the degree to which I'm a miserable wretch. The worse I am, the more gracious you look. You're following this, right? So does that mean that, you know, hey, if our unrighteousness is making God look really good, why is he judging me? God should be applauding me, shouldn't he? I'm making him look good, right? I'm using a human argument, obviously, Paul says. Certainly not. If that were true, how could God judge the world? But someone else might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and increases his glory, same idea, why am I still condemned as a sinner? You know what Paul's answer there is? You're an idiot. (laughs) Verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we, Paul is speaking, are we, are we Jews any better? No, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. As God judges one, God will judge the other. As it is written, and just look at this list, there's no one righteous, Jew or Gentile, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away, they've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, the mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way, and the way of peace they know they, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you know who God is talking about here? You. Me. Jews, Gentiles, everyone. Maybe we aren't guilty of everything in this example list, but at some level, can any of us really escape it? I'd like you to do something for me here this morning. I'd like you to just kind of turn to maybe one of the people that you said hi to a few moments ago and just look at him for a minute. Yeah, you see him? All right. All right, see him say hi to him if you want, because it's kind of just weird staring. I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. All right, see that person? Okay, that's them right there. All right, that's who's sitting next to you, right there. But you know what? You're sitting next to them too. And that's Paul's point. No one is righteous, not even one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. It's kind of like Paul saying, Jews, you know that you you claim to live by, by me, by this law, by this way. Well, you know what? It's condemning you. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You ever find that? Do you ever find that when you read what God is calling you to do, it seems to do a better job of revealing actually in your spirit what you're not doing? 
as opposed to actually giving you solid guidance of how to live it out? Have you ever felt that instead of going, great, I got an action plan, you went, oh, man, how do I? And you walk away. No one seeks God. Not even one. And if Paul has done his job by this point, he should have led every single one of us in this room to realize that there is a judgment day coming. And when that judgment day comes, there is no favoritism from God. God is just. And he will judge all sin, all evil, all the things that well in our heart. And by trying to live up to God's standards, there is something foreboding for each of us out there on the horizon. And I think that this message to Jews speaks so pertinently to even us who call ourselves the new Israel here today. Because, you know, we have our own identity markers as well. See, the Jews thought they were in because they were circumcised, because they had the law. See, God's got to give special treatment to me. But Romans said, uh-uh, none of that. God doesn't show favoritism, right? Aren't we so often guilty of the same thing? How many of us put our hope in the fact that we're a member of a church? Well, I belong somewhere. I'm connected, so you know what? I'm kind of in, or I was baptized. So my bases are covered. Fire insurance paid up, right? How many of us put a certain sense of stock or hope or idea that somehow God has got to be favorable towards me because, well, I serve in the church. I'm in leadership. I'm on the council. I help mow the lawn. I give on Sundays. My family goes back many generations of being a Lutheran. Do you know what I'm saying? Or fill in the blank of whatever church tradition you come out of. It's easy to scoff at the people who put their hope in circumcision. But are some of us who claim to be the people of God guilty of the exact same thing? And I hope that this floors you somewhat here today. Because if you can't come to terms with this, the day of judgment will be judgment for you. No one is righteous, not even one. And by trying to obey or follow God's law, no one will meet the mark. But now Paul has got some good news for you. He says, you might not be righteous by the law. And God might demand righteousness, which might leave you in a pinch. But guys, I want to tell you another way. But now, not in the future, not on the judgment day, now. But now a righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness from God is revealed. And the law and the prophets itself have testified to this righteousness. If you're following me at 21. You see where I'm at? A righteousness from God is revealed that the law and the prophets testify to. And this righteousness comes from God through grace. 
through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all those who believe. To seek righteousness by being a good person, by having the right markers in your life, the right connections, it's bankrupt. But a righteousness that is given to you freely by God through what Jesus did for you that is given to any who believe, do you know what God says? You're righteous. Trust in my son and not yourself. You're righteous. Trust in my son and not yourself. Judgment day is about judgment no longer. Trust in my son and what he's done for you and not what you think you need to do. And there is glorious grace and freedom and forgiveness and redemption and resurrection that is given to you. This is how he says it. And I encourage you, repeat this after me. The next verse says this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many? That include you? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified, made righteous. That's what that word means. Justified or made righteous freely by grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let me show you how this works. Guys, can you bring the board up for me? Let me show you how this works today. And what I want to do here today is give you an illustration of what this passage is about when Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are made righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What I want you to do, thanks guys, is imagine this. Can you see if I push it all the way back? Can you see? If not, just get up and move. All right. Let's kind of put God at the top, all right? I I think that's always a safe assumption in this world, don't you? All right, and we're going to make a benchmark, God's benchmark, of which God is, is, is has made, of which God is above, of which God has created. And it's up here, all right, by God. Now let's think of the absolute worst entity, the worst foul being that this world has ever seen or produced. And for the sake of argument, let's just go with Satan on this one, all right? It probably doesn't get worse in, the, in this world than Satan. At times we question, but probably not. And we're going to put Satan down here. And we'll make this like the absolute lowest benchmark someone can fall to, all right? Now, what I'd like to do is let's just start plotting a course. Let's start plotting people between Satan and God and where you think they fall on this like holiness trajectory or this righteousness scale. Are are you with me on this? Okay, let's start with, we'll go a different color here. Let's start with someone like Mother Teresa. All right, easy pickings. Where are we going to put Mother Teresa? You tell me when to stop. All right, anyone going to question that? Okay, I'm going to keep going for you. All right. We got Mother Teresa. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt despite the fact that she herself would disagree with you. All right? Let's go with someone on the opposite scale. I heard uh, Hitler earlier. So let's kind of plot Hitler close to Mother Teresa so we can all see. Ready? All right. Now, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. There's some of you here who like to go high in the scales. I'm going to give you the same benefit. And anyone higher? Lower, 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 lower. 
Lower. All right, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hitler is not as bad as Satan, all right? <laughs> he, so we're going to go there. All right? All right? Which Saul? Old Testament Saul or Paul Saul? Let's go Saul Paul. Saul Paul is New Testament Paul. His name used to be Saul. He changed it to Paul. Let's go to the guy who actually wrote Romans. Tell me when. Okay, this is the guy who said I am the worst of all sinners. Just Hitler's there, just so you know. Um, Inspired word of God, all right? (laughs) I'm the worst of all sinners. (laughs) All right. No, Mother Teresa's better than Paul, I guess. I'm just plotting what you tell me, all right? Let's go this one. Um, I want you to think of your grandma. Not the weird one, the one you like, all right? (laughs) You got grandma? (laughs) Okay, you tell me when. Okay, we got some kind of GMAs happening there, but I'm going to give you the rest of you guys the benefit here. Anyone else? Okay, and we got some grandmas here. Anyone going north of Mother Teresa and grandma? Would you be bold? All right, and we got a couple grandmas up there. All right? All right. Let's do this one. Your mother-in-law. All right? You give me faces, but you know. Now, here's the question. Here's the question in Romans 3.23. I didn't tell you where to put stuff. You chose it. Has anyone actually made it? Do you think you're better than Mother Teresa? Do you think you're better than your grandma? Well, maybe. Depends who I'm talking to. You get the point, right? See, there might be people at all different levels of goodness and righteousness in this world. But the point of Romans is this. God has a high standard. And it's not because he's somehow some perfectionist. It's not because he somehow likes to just screw with little kids in the classroom or something like that. It's because there is something that is fundamentally good in this world. And his standard or his law reflects it. And to not follow that is to wreak harm, evil, destruction, pain, even from people like your grandma or Mother Teresa. It can be surprising sometimes when you start to see a parental figure or a grandmother through different eyes. We see them one way, but talk to their friends, to their ex, to the people they've worked with, and you start to get different pictures because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So what does that mean? Do we jump? Does it mean, man, I'm almost there, so just boom, like like launch my... No one can get this high of the bar. But what Romans 3 is saying is this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are made righteous, are brought to the bar, freely, are brought to the bar, freely, wherever you are, by grace, through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus, 
through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah to all who believe in him, to all who trust in him, it's like, like God is sitting there. If, if God was like working the, the, the London subway, it's like you hear this voice going, mind the gap, mind the gap, you, you know, over and over again. Those of you who've been there, you know what I mean. And Christ comes and minds the gap. He fills the gap. He takes you from wherever you are and says, boom, righteous. Boom, God's standard. Boom, acceptable in his sight. Freely. By trusting in him. And that is what Romans 3 is all about. You can go on and it keeps going more and more. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, as a blood offering, as a sacrifice for you. He did it to redeem you, to purchase you, to buy you back through faith in his blood. So there is no boasting. It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, on that of faith. For we maintain that a person cannot be justified by the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is God the God of Christians only? Is he not the God of the nations, of the Gentiles too? Is he not the God over everyone in this world, wherever they might be? And is his message of freedom and forgiveness and righteousness then not also available to anyone in this world, whoever they might be? It is the heartbeat of the biblical message. It is what Romans is all about. That no matter who you are in this room and where you would plot yourself, that if you try by your own effort to cross this line, Judgment Day will hold nothing but judgment for the gap in your life. But if you recognize and realize what God has done through his son Jesus and the forgiveness and righteousness he freely gives you by faith in him, now, today, you are righteous in his sight. I'd like you to rise today. We have a practice here at FOF that we do regularly, and it's called confession. Why do we do it? The spirit behind this is for each of us to remember that we're not as good as we think we are. And it's to remember that we can't mind the gap. It's to remember that we fall short of this line, but there is a God who says, I cover it for you. I thought maybe what we could do today is just come to terms with that. Zach, why don't you put the, the passage up on the board? And I want to invite you to make these words of Scripture maybe your own prayer here today. To let them resonate with you and the sin and evil in your own life. And through it to lead you to Jesus. Pray with me. As it is written, there is no one righteous, 
not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Lord God, we come to you today. And I know that I have not escaped that list. We come to you today as a people who are not righteous, who have not carried out your law or your decree, who have not been faithful. We come to you as a people who have fallen short. Forgive us, O oh God, we pray. Because of your Son, we stand before you and say thank you. Because we know and trust that that forgiveness is ours. When we seek to trust our own righteousness and not what you have done, forgive us, God. May we throw ourselves on you today, on your mercy and trust what you have done through your son. And may that faith be what marks us. May that faith in your son be our identity marker, not our membership or our circumcision, not our family history or the church we belong to, not the good we've tried to do in the past or what our family has done, not the religious rights that we've received, May faith be what marks us as the people who have been called righteous by your son in your sight. Thank you. Oh God, we pray. Amen.